you've not already done so, open your Bibles to that passage. Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, this four of four sermon songs. And as I said, probably the most familiar. This is actually the song that you remember back in Acts chapter 8. This is the song that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when uh, he met Philip. And when Philip asked him if he understood what he was reading, when he, uh, Philip then began with this passage and explained to him the good news about Jesus. And really, that Philip was able to do that because all of these songs have given us a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the, in the previous songs, as I said, we were introduced to the servant as the, as the beloved of the Lord who would work tirelessly to establish justice in the earth, to, to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And yet, as the one, despite his faithfulness, even, even because of his faithfulness, the one who would be rewarded with punishment and shame. And here in this final song, we're, we're finally given a picture of how these two threads, the, the thread of the servant's success and the thread of the servant's suffering, are woven together in God's glorious and, and mysterious plan. Of redemption. So let's, let's look at it together. You'll, you'll notice that the song begins with, with the call to do just that, to look carefully at the servant, to, to look carefully at this one through whom and in whom God is going to, to accomplish all that he had promised to do for his people. He, he says, behold my servant. Look carefully at him. Don't just, don't just glance, but set your eyes upon him. Behold him. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to behold Jesus. And as we begin to set our eyes upon him, the first thing we will see here in this text is that, is that he is one who acts with wisdom. The Lord says, behold my servant, he shall act wisely. Think about what that means. One of my professors defined wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is the ability to, to live life in accord with God's revealed will. It, it is the skill of, of living a, a godly life. And so when we're told that the, the servant will act wisely, we are, we are told, being told that, that he will walk in a way that is in, in accord with God's will, that he will do his Father's will, that he will do the, the course, that he will walk the course that has been marked out for him all the way to the end. He will be perfectly faithful. He will not turn to the right or to the left as the, the people of Israel so often did. But rather, he will walk steadfastly in the footsteps of faith. And notice, at the end of this path, he will be exalted. He will act wisely, and in the end, it will result in his Exaltation, he will be high and lifted up. We're, we're told that kings shall shut their mouths in his presence. Think about that. It's a, it's a sign of, of awe, a sign of honor. Kings dare not speak before him. Why? Because in him and through him, God will do something far greater than anything they had ever boasted of, anything they had ever even imagined. In him, they will see that which had never been told. So what is this great work? What, what is this thing that the servant will accomplish? Well, the, the Lord tells us. He tells us there in verse 15. What is it that the servant will do? He will sprinkle 
nations. Again, think about, think about that imagery. What does it, what does it mean to say that the, the servant will sprinkle the nations? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that, that, that sprinkling is priestly work. It is a work that, that signified cleansing, cleansing from, from sin, cleansing from guilt, cleansing from defilement. It was, it was a cleansing from sin that resulted in reconciliation with God. It was a, a, a cleansing that resulted in atonement, that, that restoration of right relationship. And so to be told that the servant will sprinkle the nations is to be told that he will cleanse them and that he will reconcile them to God. He is going to make peace between the people who were justly condemned and the God who had condemned them. This is what the servant is going to do. He is going to sprinkle the nations. See, he will not merely deal with human enemies, human oppressors. That's what we think of when we, when we think of salvation. There are, there are people out there who, who are oppressing us. There are people out there who are, who are working for our heart and they need to be dealt with, and we want a Savior who will, who will stop uh, their oppression, who will put an end to their malice. But this servant, this Savior, is going to do something far greater, because he is going to deal with our far deeper problem. He will reconcile man to God by dealing with the pollution and the perversion of our sin. You see, our, our greatest need is not to be rescued from our fellow human beings who, who sometimes work against our best interests. Our greatest need is to be rescued from the coming wrath of God. The holy God hates sin. His wrath has been kindled by our rebellion. And he cannot simply look away. He cannot simply ignore it. He must address it. He must deal with it. Or he would not be the Holy One of Israel. And that is our greatest need. That is our greatest problem. That we are subject rightly and justly to the holy wrath of God. And that is precisely why the servant comes. He comes to, to deal with with the, 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 the pollution, the perversion of our sin, and thereby turn away God's wrath and reconcile us to Him. The servant will make peace between the Holy One and the sinful ones who sin and kindled His wrath. And so in this opening stanza, we are called on to behold with wonder the work of Jesus Christ, the, the work of the Lord's servant who will act wisely by decisively dealing with sin and reconciling man to God. And who will therefore be highly exalted. Or as, as Paul says it in his letter to the Philippians, that, that language that we were, are so familiar with, he will receive the name that is above every name. So that in his name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the image that Isaiah is putting before us here. It's the, it's the image that, that Paul proclaims there in Philippians, the, 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 the message of Jesus' exaltation, of his, his glorification, of his enthronement on high. It's the image that is being set before us. But, but in the midst of all of this glory, look again at verse 14. 
Because verse 14 is our clue that the servant's path to this glory, the servant's path to this exaltation is going to be anything but straightforward. The first line of verse 14 is, is going to actually be completed in, in verse 15. As many as were astonished at the servant, he says, as many as were astonished at you, that many will later shut their mouths because of him. Those who are astonished will, will later stand silently in awe of him. Now that doesn't surprise us the way it should. We, we don't hear the, the contrast because for us, for, for modern readers, astonishment and awe are not that different. We, we think of them as, as pretty much the same. But, but notice something about this astonishment that's mentioned in verse 14. It, it, it's not the astonishment of awe at, at, at something glorious and good. Why were the many astonished? They were astonished because of his appearance was so marred. They were astonished because he was beyond human semblance. His form was marred beyond the children of men. They were astonished because in his suffering, he didn't even look human anymore. So it seems that there's something more like shock. This is, this is the shock of, of seeing something truly horrifying. It's the shock of seeing human suffering at its most intense. And so the servant's path to glory, the, the servant's path to exaltation, the, the servant's path to this name that is above every name, it is a path that takes him through the full horrors of the valley of the shadow of death. And we have to admit, that's strange. If we weren't so familiar with the story, if we, if we didn't know how things turned out, we would, we would be left perplexed. We would be left asking, why? Why would God mark out such a course for his beloved and faithful servant? That's precisely the question that this song is uh, going to answer for us, beginning in chapter 53. If, if chapter, the last part of 52 introduces us to the picture, chapter 53 gives us the explanation. Let's look at it again together. The first stanza of chapter 53 begins with a, with a rhetorical question. That, that's really more of an exclamation. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? The prophet is telling us that it's going to be hard, even impossible to believe what he has to say. And modern policy is he's saying something like, you aren't going to believe this. You aren't going to believe what I have to tell you. You aren't going to believe the, the story of this servant. You're not going to believe what you're going to see in him and in his path. And, and I think there are at least five aspects to his story that, that are unbelievable for us as we uh, work through chapter 53. And the first is simply his, his start. Notice, notice where he begins. We're told that he, he begins like a young plant. He, he grew up before him like a young plant. If you've ever done much gardening, you know a young plant is Weak and vulnerable, easy to kill. As a, as a kid who had to do chores for his mom who loves gardening, I remember how easy it is to kill plants. I did it often. And not on purpose. I know some people think, you know, that the kids do this on purpose to get out of chores. It didn't work in my house. I still had to dig holes. I just had to dig more of them because the plants kept dying. It's easy to kill plants. A young plant is weak. A young plant is, is vulnerable. And that's the picture that Isaiah uses. To describe to us the Savior. And of course we know it to be true. This 
especially on this Christmas Sunday when we remember the, the birth of Jesus, we, we remember that Jesus took on human flesh. Think about what that means, that the, the Almighty, the Immortal, takes on uh, human flesh with all of its infirmities, all of its weaknesses, and he, and he doesn't just take it on as an adult, he takes it on as a baby, wholly dependent upon others. This is the, the weakness, this is the, the vulnerability of Jesus. He came like a young plant. And not only was he like a young plant, but he was like a root out of dry ground. Think about that. Not, not just vulnerable, but vulnerable in a harsh place. Again, think of the, the story of, of Christmas. Think of the, the, the general disregard that, that everyone there had for, for his well-being. If his parents couldn't even find room in the inn, he was, he was born in a stable. This is the, this is the reality. Vulnerable in a, in a harsh place, a harshness that would be realized when, when Herod, in a murderous rage, sought to, to take his life by killing all of the babies in Bethlehem in the script. Weak. Vulnerable in a harsh place. And even beyond this, utterly without privilege. We, we hear a lot today about privilege, about the, the different privileges that, that make life easier. And certainly there are, there are privileges that, that make it easier for us to, to, to experience success in this life. But the, the prophet is telling us here that Jesus had none of that. He was weak, he was, he was vulnerable, and he was marginalized. He was entirely without privilege. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was, there was nothing about him that made people want to help him. There was nothing about him that made people want to, to advance his interests. He had no beauty, nothing to, to attract the benevolence of those with power that we should desire him. He was weak. He was vulnerable. He was marginalized. This is, this is how his story begins. But it's only beginning. For not only was he born in a lonely condition, not only did he have this humble start, but from here he went on to endure horrible suffering. Let's begin at verse 3. We're told that he was despised and rejected by men. Despised. Rejected. He, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, he was that suffering one that the men turn away from so as not to make eye contact. That one from whom men hide their faces. This is our Lord. This is the life that, that he was born into. This is the course that he walked. So the prophet can say in verse 4 that he was stricken, stricken smitten, and afflicted. Verse 5, that he was pierced. Verse, verse 5, again, that he was crushed. And that comes up again in verse 10. Again, we're told that he was crushed. That he was put to grief. That he was subjected to deep anguish. This is the, the picture of his horrible suffering. This is the suffering of our Savior. This is the suffering of the Father's beloved. This is the suffering of the one with whom, with, with whom the Father was well pleased. Just think about that for a moment. We, we sometimes wonder if God loves us when things don't go our way. When we can't find a, a parking spot at Target on Christmas Eve. You know? and this, is, this is when we begin to wonder, well, God, why aren't you for me? 
Why aren't you working things out? And of course, sometimes our suffering is far more serious, far more severe. But, but when we encounter such suffering, we can begin to wonder if, if God is, is truly for us. We can begin to wonder if He is really, uh, if He really loves us, if He's really working all things together for our good, if, he, if, he's, if he's truly faithful to us. And yet, what do we see? Here is the one who was faithful to him. Here is the one who was beloved by him. Here is the one with whom he is well pleased. And yet this is the path that is set before him. A path of horrible suffering. It is, as I said, almost beyond our comprehension. And even more so when we realize that it's not just that, that he happened to, to walk down this path that he was sent down this path. This is the path that was set before him by his father. It was the father's will that he suffered in this way. We, we see this in verse 10. Look again at what we're told there. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the, the father, put the son to grief. The father did this. This is the reality that, that sometimes leads people to speak of, of cosmic child abuse, as if God were somehow abusing his, his son. I, I hope to show you before the end that that is an absurd charge. But, but we don't need to dismiss the idea that, that the father did this on purpose. This was intentional. The, the son submits because he knows it is the father's will. His, his suffering is part of his father's and it is not an accident. He's, he's not merely crushed by the wheels of history, as some theologians have said. He came for this very purpose because this was his father's plan. And that is why we're told that, that he opens not his mouth in the face of his oppressors. He is like a lamb before his shears. He, he is like a lamb that's going to be going to the, the slaughter, but I think he's only going to go get a haircut. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't lift up his voice. That doesn't mean that he's, he's stoic. It doesn't mean that he doesn't feel. It doesn't mean that he doesn't groan or, or, or weep. We, we see Jesus weeping. We, we see Jesus weeping even in the, the garden on the, on the night that he is betrayed. We see the anguish that, that he experiences as he prepares to drink deeply from the, the cup of God's wrath. He's not a stoic. But he does not cry out to be delivered. He does not cry out to be avenged. He says, Father, if this is your will, if this is the only way to accomplish your good purposes, let me drink. Let me drink the cup that you have prepared. We heard in the, the third servant song, he gives his back to those who strike. He gives his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He hides not his face from the disgrace and the spitting. This is the love of Jesus for you. This is the love of, of Jesus for his people. We know this because he's doing this for us. Notice again, it says, it says the, Father, the, the Lord's will was to crush him. But why? Because he is the lamb. He is that lamb that, that Sam was talking about with the children. He is the, the lamb that brings atonement. 
He is the Lamb that removes our guilt as far as the East is from the West. You see, He submits to the Father's will. He, he submits to this suffering because He comes as our substitute. We see this explicitly in verses 4 through 6. Look, at, look again at what the prophet says. Not only has he suffered, but he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And, and just in case there's any doubt about the reason for our suffering, just, just in case there's any doubt about the reason why we are, are grieved and, and, and sorrowful in this life, he, he makes it abundantly clear in verse 5. What does he say? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. It was our sin, it was our transgressions that led him to the cross. You see, our sins, our transgressions had, had rightly brought us under the wrath of God. They had, they had rightly condemned us to, to suffer eternally. And yet God was not content to, to leave us in that sin and that, that misery forever, but rather in his grace. He determined to save for himself the people. He determined to redeem for himself the people through the blood of his own son. So that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace, that, 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 that restored relationship with God is ours because he was punished in our place by his wounds. We have been we're so familiar with the words, but right, when they meditate upon them, open your mind to hear them afresh. Let them fill your heart this morning. He suffered. He was stricken. He was pierced and he was crushed so that we might have peace with God. So that we might be delivered from the wrath to come. So that we might be healed. This is why Jesus this is why he submitted to the Father's plan. This is why he suffered. He suffered for us. He suffered in our place. He suffered as our substitute. We are the sinners justly condemned. We, we, we saw this uh, earlier in our service. We, we confessed that, that we are all sinners justly deserving of God's displeasure. And we see it here in, in verse 7. Look again at what the prophet says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're like sheep in an entirely different way than Jesus. We are like sheep in their foolish stubbornness. We are like sheep that, that go and do whatever they think is right, regardless of the consequences. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that the prophet can say in verse 11, through his suffering, through his death, many have been made to be counted righteous. That's the gospel. That's the, the wonder of what's going on here. We, the, those who were justly condemned because of our sins, we have been counted righteous in the sight of God. We have been counted as, as having a right to all of the, of the promises that, that God made. We have been counted as covenant keepers with a right to all of the blessings of that covenant. Because he stood in our place. He who was righteous and knew no sin became sin for us. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the salvation that this song proclaims. He bore our griefs so that we might enter into his joy. We, he was cursed so that we might be blessed. He was condemned so that we might be justified, so that we might have peace with God. That's what renders the, the charge of, of cosmic child abuse so absurd. Think about it. Parents often knowing they send their children into harm's way for the sake of the good. We, we think of the parents of, of soldiers or the parents of police officers or the, the parents of, of firefighters. But I want you to recognize that really this is true of all parents who raise their children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. All children who, who raise their parents to, to, to walk in the paths of, of God's righteousness, to, to walk in the footsteps of faith, are actively sending their children into harm's way. Because Jesus said, whoever walks in the paths of righteousness in this life will have trouble. They will face opposition. They will be harmed. And so if you are raising your children this morning in instruction and the discipline of the Lord, then you are actively preparing your children for trouble. And yet, we know it is an act of love. Because we know that God's glory will rule and overrule in the end. And so here we see the Father not only sending the Son to, to walk in the footsteps of, of righteousness and the trouble that comes with that, but we actually see Him sending the Son to take the place of sinners, to, to submit to their punishment, that he might lead many sons to glory. The father does not crush the son because he's malicious. He crushes the son because he is love. He does not spare his son, but sends him to die willingly so that we might be saved. And really, this is the, the final unbelievable thing that, that Isaiah has to proclaim to us this morning. We, we've seen that the servant, we've seen that the, the son, that Jesus Christ came to establish justice in the earth. And we, we recognize that, that means dealing with wickedness and, and evil, uh, uh, destroying the works of the devil, establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We, we recognize that, but, but we also recognize that there's a problem. And the problem is that we are among the wicked. We all, like sheep, have turned astray. Each and every one of us has, has turned to his own way so that we are amongst the wicked that must be dealt with. And that's why the gospel is better than anything we ever could have hoped or imagined. Yes, the Son comes to establish justice in the earth. Yes, he comes to establish the kingdom of God in heaven. But at the same time, he comes to qualify us for an inheritance in that kingdom. You see, there are a lot of debates today about the essence of the gospel. What is the gospel? You can probably find a, a dozen books of that title published in the last few years. And some people want to emphasize that the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. The, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Others say, no, no, that's not the heart of the gospel. The, the heart of the gospel is that God reigns. The heart of the gospel is that he's establishing his, his kingdom on earth. I want you to hear me say this morning, you don't have to choose. In fact, you can't choose. You must not choose. We need them both or there is no gospel. Jesus' path to glory went through the cross because he came to do both. To establish justice, yes. To establish the kingdom of God on earth, yes. And to qualify 
sinners for an inheritance in that kingdom. You see, if you have forgiveness without a kingdom, you don't have a gospel. What good is it to, to live eternally in this world? What good is it to, to live eternally if the kingdom of God never comes? But at the same time, what good is it if the kingdom comes and you are left out? We need both. We need the kingdom and we need the forgiveness. And the servant does both. He establishes justice in the land. And then lays down his life for sinners that they might enter into the kingdom. That's what these psalms teach us. That's the, the picture of Jesus that we are given. The Savior who does both. Who brings the kingdom and brings us into the kingdom. That's why his work is beyond believing. That's why we call the celebration of his birth good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for the, the glory of this gospel. We thank you that it's not a partial gospel. We thank you that it's not a half gospel. Father. We thank you that it is the full good news that we so desperately need. We need to know that there is a Savior coming who will establish justice in the earth. And we need to know that there is a substitute who can qualify us for inheritance in and Father, in Jesus Christ, we have both. And so we thank you for him. And we praise you in his name. Asking that you would give us the faith to rest upon him. And the strength to honor him in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.